What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Masters of Community podcast. My name is David Spinks, founder of CMX and VP of Community at Bevy. Each week, I bring you an expert who will help you take your community to the next level. Thank you so much for joining me. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, I just wanna give you a quick heads up that my new book, The Business of Belonging, How to Make Community Your Competitive Advantage is now available anywhere where you can buy books on Amazon and any bookstore. It is the complete collection of everything I've learned from the last 13 years and how to build community for your business and all of the frameworks and models that the CMX team has developed to teach businesses how to do this work. It's all in here. I really appreciate all your support. You can go and order it now. We have an amazing interview for you today with the Howard Rheingold. He's the one that is credited with actually coming up with the term virtual community. He's written multiple books over many decades, including Tools for Thoughts, Smart Mobs, NetSmart, and The Virtual Community. He's one of the original members of The Well, one of the first online communities. And he's taught at Stanford on community and social interaction. He's just one of the people who helped create and define this entire world of community that we are all living and working in. We go deep into the history of communities and how it's evolved over time, everything that Howard's learned about, how communities form and how we're interacting, a lot of the challenges that we're facing today when it comes to loneliness and the impact that these social platforms are having on our ability to connect with each other and and connect more meaningfully. This was an absolute joy. He's someone that I've looked up to for my whole career and just has so much wisdom to share. So you're all gonna absolutely love this one. Let's dive into the interview. Now we're gonna try something new in this episode. Would love to hear from all of you. Part of the challenge of doing a podcast is it's not very interactive. And so for a community builder like me, that's very stressful. I wanna hear from you. I wanna hear how the episodes are resonating with you. And so we're going to ask you to respond to us, respond to this episode, to send an email to pod at cmxhub.com. Again, that's pod at cmxhub.com. And just share your responses to this episode or share an experience that you've had that's relevant to this episode. Share anything that comes to mind. And we're going to pick one of your responses to read at the end of a future episode. All right, so pod at cmxhub.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Howard, welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. I was just telling you before we hit record that I'm a little starstruck right now. I've been following your work for my entire career. And for a lot of people, your name is kind of synonymous with community. When people think about community and virtual communities and how this whole world developed that we're living in today, a lot of people reference you and your work and your books when they talk about it. So very, very excited to be able to spend an hour together today. Great. Me too. So why don't we start off for people who aren't fully familiar with your background, your experience with the well, the books that you've written, your teacher in a university, your professor. So why don't you just share your like quick version of your background? Okay. Well, you know, at my age, it's hard to do a quick version. But <laughs> Take your time. Do the long version. We got time. We got an hour. Well, the online part really came as a result of me being a freelance writer. 
And I became interested in the idea that you could write with computers because I was tired of my typewriter. <laughs> and that led me to talking my way into a job at Xerox Park, where a lot of what we now know as personal computers were developed. And that led me to meet Doug Engelbart, who was responsible for most of what, including what we're doing right now, most of digital media today. And whether or not it has to do with your community business, if you haven't read Doug Engelbart's 1962 article on augmenting human intellect, I highly recommend it. Anyway, meeting those people led me to write a book called Tools for Thought, which was published in 1985. And as a consequence of that book, I got a modem, which uh, for many of your listeners may be an ancient technology, but you plugged it into your telephone and then plugged it into your computer, and then you could try to connect. Being always connected was a big deal when it happened because you had to go through this ritual to get online. Anyway, I got online. I was fascinated by what was going on there. Being a writer, I was alone all the time. If you've read my book, you know that story. I connected with The Well, which had been an offshoot of the Whole Earth catalog. And it was the first kind of multi-line BBS that was affordable. And I was so fascinated by what was going on there, both as a, a writer and someone who's interested in technology, that I started writing about it. I wrote the article Virtual Communities for the Whole Earth Review in 1987. And it took me five years to get a book deal on that because publishers kept telling me that only electrical engineers would ever use computer networks to yeah. communicate with. So my book, The Virtual Community, I wanted to call it Virtual Communities, but my editor said it sounded too much like my previous book, Virtual Reality. So mm -hmm. I called it The Virtual Community. That was published in 1993, I think. That was the same year that the New Yorker cartoon of the on the internet, Nobody Knows You're a Dog, surfaced. So it was about the time that the internet began to surface in the popular imagination. We were still 10 years away from World Wide Web, and I think longer than that from the term social media. But there were already people communicating online. And in my book, I actually went around the world and talked to virtual communities and in different parts of the world that existed in 1991 and 92. Since then, I've written a number of other books. They all turn out to be about what the future is going to be like about 10 years away. So mm -hmm. Tools for Thought, 1985, what would it be like when hundreds of millions of people have personal computers all connected in, in networks? And the virtual community was, what's it going to be like when a, a significant portion of the population communicates through what are now called social media. And then in 2002, I published Smart Mobs, which was about what we now call smartphones and what people might be doing with them later. And my last book was in 2012. It was called Net Smart. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit towards the end, because it had to do with the question that had arisen and which is, I think, very relevant today, which is, are these media really good for us as individuals mm. and as communities and societies? And my answer to that was in that book. Anyway, my daughter, who features on the first page of the virtual community as a child, she was in college. And I was alarmed by the fact that there were all these kids in college who were becoming immersed in communicating online. I mean, back then it was AOL Instant Messenger, but the yep. universities weren't really teaching anything I don't mean about how to use it. I mean about what are all the issues that it raised. So mm -hmm. 
I don't have a PhD, but Stanford allowed me to teach there mostly because there's something called the citation index that's important to scholars and academics. And practically everything that had been written at that time about the social aspects of communicating online included my book, The Virtual Community, and my art, my 1987 article. So I got a, a pass on not uh, really having a degree. And I taught at Stanford, I taught digital journalism. I taught a class that was first called Virtual Community and then became Social Media Issues. And finally, I taught a class called Social Media Literacies. And I was invited by the sociology department at Berkeley to teach there. So at one point, for about five years, I taught at both Berkeley and Stanford. And since I was teaching about social media, it only made sense to use social media. So I had our learners using forums and blogs and wikis and Twitter. And I became much more interested in the use of social media and learning. And of course, there was a big emergency explosion of that with the COVID-19 when everybody started going online and teachers really didn't have training. And frankly, teaching the regular curriculum through Zoom calls is not the way to go. I retired from teaching in 2015 and I continued to write on Patreon and on Twitter, but no more books. No more books. That's it. Well, you know, a book takes three years out of your life. Yes, it does. I just wrote my first one, so I know the pain. (laughs) Well, it takes you a year to really get to know your subject enough to sell a book and to get a contract. And then since I wrote about the future, I had to write it in a year. Really, it should have taken me two or three years. And then you spend a year promoting this book that you're thoroughly sick of by that time. So (laughs) I'm 74 now. I don't want to spend three years of my life doing that. And I've written, I don't know, a dozen or so books. So the thrill is somewhat gone from that. Understandable. Well, I think it's fair to give you a break then, but I'll still ask about what maybe a book would be for the next 10 years. But before we dive into the future, I mean, what an incredible journey. And and there's so much rich history in your experience that I think provides a lot of context for those of us who are experiencing virtual communities today, which is all of us. And especially for people who are working in this space, I'm curious to learn more about the well a little bit because it was before my time and I hear about it a lot. And I'm just curious, like, first off, what was it about? Like, why did people gather at the well? What were people talking about? And what did it feel like? Like, what was the culture of the well in those times? I think you have to understand the Whole Earth Catalog first. Okay. Whole Earth Catalog, probably the parents of most of the people who are listening to this (laughs) had a copy of it. It was published in 1968. And It was originally meant to be kind of a catalog to get everything you needed if you were going to build your own civilization. You're going to make a commune and live off the land. Which is becoming very popular again. Maybe we should bring it back. Yeah, I think the, the lesson of what Fred Turner called the new communalists in his book, which I recommend to people about who are interested in the well, which is from cyberculture to counterculture, because he, like Steve Jobs, drew a direct line between the well and social media today. The lesson back then was that it's really very difficult to be completely independent of civilization. And Mm. if you're going to become a subsistence farmer, understand that you're going to be working really hard physically a lot of the time. So I share that goal. It's an interesting goal. Get together with a few friends and go out and make your own society. It's hard to do. But the catalog 
for all of the people, including myself, who didn't go off to join a commune, it was kind of a touchstone. The motto of the catalog was access to tools and ideas. So it wasn't just about living off the land. It was about what's now called ecology. A lot of that came from Mm. the land use portion of the Whole Earth Catalog. And it was deliberately eclectic and ultimately included computers. In fact, Stuart Brand, who started the Whole Earth Catalog, is the person who is attributed with the first use of the term personal computer. Mm. So anyway, that group being eclectic, there were people interested in technology. There were hippies. When I was the editor of the Whole Earth Review, and I traveled around, I met literally generals and people from the intelligence community, as well as hippies and teachers and others. So it was something that you don't see very often because publications need to exist by delivering advertisers to a particular audience. audience, And that's one of the reasons that the Whole Earth Review went out of business. (laughs) Another one of the touchstones for the Whole Earth Catalog and for the Whole Earth Review was, let's question assumptions. Let's not just question everybody's assumptions. Let's question our own assumptions as well. So the Whole Earth Catalog being the kind of the seed community brought together people who were interested in a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I'd say people who were online were almost entirely white. Not entirely. Mm -hmm. There was a black planet was going on at that time, and there were African-Americans online. But for the most part, online communities back then were white. And for the most part, Mm -hmm. they were male. And I was interested in the well because there were a few people who weren't white, and there were a lot of women aboard. And as a writer, I had to stay home most of the time writing. So getting to meet and communicate regularly with a diverse set of interests. There were teachers, there were political activists, there were people in the technology community. Many of the people like uh, Steve Case, when I was on Facebook, Steve Case friended me on Facebook and I messaged him. I said, well, I know who you are. Why do you know who I am? And he said, well, I was on the well, kind of clandestinely. You probably, most people know about Craigslist. Craig really attributes the, the ethos of Craigslist to his time on the well. So there were a lot, also a lot of the pioneers of technology journalism. John Markoff, who was the New York Times technology editor for many years. Steve Levy, who still writes for Wired magazine. So it was kind of a watering hole for those few writers and journalists who were actively engaged and participating in online media. And the other, I think the one of the most important things about it was that Stuart Brand, who founded it, was a strong personality. He went off to Boston to write a book on the Media Lab. So it was kind of the inmates running the asylum. Mm. And the, also the other, I think, important part of what made the well what it was, was that Brand did not hire technology experts to run it. He hired some people who had spent 15 years on the farm, which was a famous back-to-the-land commune, which still exists. So here were people who knew nothing to start with about technology. They learned on the job, but they knew a lot about community. And I think that the reason the well succeeded and that I saw it as a community had to do with these people who had lived in community under trying circumstances and and had raised kids there. And of course, on the well, we were convinced that the rest of the world was going to get onto this thing that we were so excited about. 
We knew enough about the evolution of technology to understand that the words on a screen that we were using in 1985, they would be sounds and video and graphics. Right. Nobody imagined YouTube sure. and Wikipedia and many of the things that happened, but we knew that it would grow and evolve. And we were interested in talking about that, which we did. Yeah, I mean, it's so cool to think about like the core elements of community that we see in all these things today. And it was kind of really coming into existence then. And even just the people you listed that participated in this community, it's cool to think about how something that feels small and intimate at one point in your life or in your career may actually be this jumping off point for a whole range of people, you look 20, 30, 40 years on the line, and how many people can probably draw straight lines in their experience back to the well. Makes you think about like the communities you participate in today. I think there were a lot of other things happening besides the well, which I wrote about in my book. There was Usenet, which had existed since 1980. There were thousands of BBSs There was IRC, which I guess Slack is the closest thing we have today. Yeah, IRC IRC was my, probably my first experience, like some old forums and IRC were the first times that I started participating in online communities. But I think one of the smart decisions Stuart Brand made was he didn't spend a a penny on publicity, but he gave free accounts to journalists. And so I think that that was, besides this kind of unique, eclectic nature that I described, I think the fact that so many journalists were writing about it, what got the word out, that that really wasn't so true of all of these thousands of little BBSs or Usenet or IRC, which was mostly confined to technologists and researchers. Yeah. So I'm curious as well, because you're largely credited with coining the term virtual community. So how were people talking about it then? And what was it like to essentially coin the term? Like, did you know you were coining a new term at the time? No, I didn't. And I'll have to say that I've discovered in recent years that in a publication that was a little bit obscure by a a journalist by the name of Gene Youngblood, he had used the term virtual community before I did. But I popularized it and spread it around. Certainly that whole Earth article did. You know, what it really came from was uh, when I talked to people who weren't online, they were kind of taken aback or even offended by the idea that people communicated online had anything to do with community. But, you know, as I wrote in the book, uh, there were people who were getting married. We were sitting by the bedside of friends who were dying. Mm. We began to have parties and get together. And because it was in the San Francisco Bay Area, primarily before you could connect through the internet, then people could get together face to face and we began to know each other and our lives began to intertwine. And I felt that we did all the things that you would expect in a real community, mutual aid, love and hate, bickering and understanding and learning from each other. So that's why I wrote it was to try to counter the impression that there was something pathological about meeting and getting to know people and bringing them into your life even though you had never met them before and you met them online. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, I've gotten a lot of flack about that over the years. And when I started teaching, I looked it up. I did some research on it. There was a sociologist by the name of George Hillier in the 1950s did a search of the sociological literature and found 93 different definitions of community. So it's kind of a projective test. 
And a lot of people use it as something nice and warm, like a community is a place where everybody knows your name that used to exist, but doesn't really anymore. So there's, I think, a lot of kind of fake nostalgia and projection on that name. And I also think, you know, there are communities who are of, that are not nice, that mm. do things that are not good. So I think it's important for people to understand that. My really simple definition of community is a group of people who share something in common, who communicate regularly. Mm-hmm. So that could be face-to-face or it could be online. Yeah, I can relate a lot on your early experiences with community. That's how I felt. So my when I first started participating in IRC, I was in middle school, so still pretty young. And I re- just remember, I remember pretty vividly how it felt to participate in those spaces and how different how I felt participating there was from how people were perceiving participating in online communities. It was perceived as like weird like a strange thing. Like if I told someone that I was talking to strangers on the internet, they thought I was weird, right? They think that's a weird thing to do. It's uncomfortable. It's odd. It's outcasty. And then even like fast forward to things like Twitter and like Twitter was weird for like 10 years. People were like, you tweet, that's super weird. Why would you do that? That's a weird thing to do. And now it's ubiquitous in the mainstream. And so it's just interesting to see how community evolves and how we've come to accept online communities as a default in the way. And in many ways, when people say the word community today, they actually think digital community before they even think of in-person community. Well, you know, if you think about it, finding friends, people with whom you share ideas and interests and who have some kind of mutual commitment or even finding a mate, does that really happen that easily because of your neighborhood or your job? Or think about it, you know, long before dating apps, how did people find dates? Well, they, they went to bars. They went yeah. to bars and talked to strangers. How different it is to say, I'm interested in butterfly collecting. Who else is interested in butterfly collecting? And, you know, even back then, the 1990s, I guess we're talking about close to 30 years ago, a, f- a growing percentage of people met their mates, the people they married online. So that's not exactly the same thing as community, but it does have to do with the way communicating online has intersected with human interaction. And I think if you get to know somebody through their words before you meet them face-to-face, there's a certain advantage to that. Mm -hmm. And of course, I think everybody listening to this knows that there's kind of a shock when you communicate with someone online for quite a while, and then you meet them face-to-face. Back before we had video and graphics, you had to imagine what that person looked like and sounded like. So it was even more of a shock. Yeah, But now the online world is part of the offline world. They're not really separate realms. They intersect and affect each other. Yeah, it's inextricable now. It's part of who we are in our social identity. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts now, given deep experience over many years, seeing community go online and go from this weird thing into this ubiquitous thing. You gave a really incredible TED Talk that I had to re-listen to before our interview. And at the end of it, you said something that was interesting. You asked a question. You said, what forms of suffering can be alleviated if we knew a little more about cooperation? And so I'm curious, seeing kind of the evolution of community from those days to now, seeing things like the loneliness epidemic also growing, right? Like people are 
saying that they have less friends, less connection, less community. How do you think community is serving us or is it hurting us in the way we've kind of shifted community into these online spaces to replace things that traditionally provided us community in the past? Well, you know, I was curious about why it was that people, including myself, would spend time giving our knowledge and information to people who needed that, who we didn't even know. I couldn't find any scholars in 1992 who were concentrating on online communication, but I did find a graduate student at UCLA by the name of Mark Smith, who's doing his thesis on on Usenet. And I asked him, why do people do this? And he said, knowledge capital, social capital, and communion. And I think that's, there may be other factors, but I think those are still true today. Knowledge capital, as a writer, that totally amazed me because I know things and people want to know things. It's easy enough for me to tell them what I know. But it turns out that those people know things too. And for every piece of knowledge that I give away, I would get 10 times that amount back. And I think if you know how to do it, then harvesting, cultivating and harvesting that kind of knowledge capital can be a a tremendous multiplier, not just for journalists, but for students, parents, all political activists, all kinds of people. It's, I think, still today, one of the most important benefits of life online. You need to know how to do it. I wrote something about that more more contemporaneous called Twitter literacy. So if you Google Twitter literacy in my name, you'll find my advice on how to build a personal learning community. Social capital is really interesting. And it was one of the things that I taught my students because there's a a real literature on social capital. Social capital, very generally defined, is the ability of a group of people to get things done together outside of formal arrangements like laws and contracts. So that's where that cooperation aspect comes in. And it turns out that You know, if you do for people, you communicate with people, you tell jokes with people, you share experiences with people, you're going to be there when they need you sometimes. And you're going to be there when, I mean, they're going to be there when you need them. You know, there's a fantastic uh, book about uh, democracy in Italy that talks about the fact that people from different parts of the city, different social classes, their children would be in choral societies together centuries ago. And so, kind of like the soccer parent, they would get to know each other. If you're a farmer, you have good relations with your neighbors and you break your leg, your neighbors are going to come in and help harvest your crops. So that's social capital. Social capital does not automatically happen. It's something that you have to build it. You have to give out to others before others will give to you. And you have to knit something together resembling a community. And then the last part, communion, that feeling of that shared feeling. And really, I'm talking about the emotional aspect of it that you get with people. I think some extreme examples of that are caregivers for children with serious diseases. But also, if you're the only Nazi in your small town, you can experience communion with others around the world. So that feeling of emotional connection with a group that you share an ethic with. I think that's part of it as well. And, you know, all of these things have nuances to them. But I think in general, those are aspects of community that when it's present, it's more like a community. And when it's absent, you can have a network of people who share knowledge, but don't really experience a shared social capital or communion, for example. Right. And, it's, you know, like 
lots of those around and they're useful. It's a good, it's a great point. And I think when you look at a lot of internet communities, they tend to focus on knowledge and information and not always emotion. And it can be hard to form deeper emotional ties with people when you're in a really large, loosely connected community. Well, also, I think, unfortunately, for most people on earth these days, their uh, connection with online community is through Facebook. And I don't have to go on at length about all the bad stuff that happens on Facebook. It was very useful to me, as it is to everybody who uses it, but I just couldn't stand being part of it anymore. So I quit Facebook a few years ago. And I think there are many very useful Facebook groups, you know, including groups for parents of children with rare diseases and other kinds of mutual aid. But I think you are exposed also to a lot of misinformation, disinformation, and hate through that same platform. So I think that the scale of community really matters. You know, there was a paper, the name of the author will come to me in a few minutes, in which an author, oh, Robin Dunbar, anthropologist by the name of Robin Dunbar, noticed that in primate bands, the size of the band was correlated with the size of the brain. And so Mm -hmm. when you get to humans, the size of the band that most individuals can maintain pretty good ties with is about 150, Mm -hmm. which turns out to be about the size of the basic military unit from the time of the Romans. There has been some research since then that shows that social media certainly can extend that Dunbar number beyond 150. But now we're bombarded with information. We may not mutually communicate, but we may get information from thousands of people. And I think that so there's a lot of noise in that ecosystem outside of the smaller communities. And I think 150, 200 is about right. The thing about the well, to go back to the well, you ask, what what did we talk about there? We talked about everything. There was a place for writers. There was a place for parents. There was a place for sports fans. There was a place for people who were interested in the Grateful Dead. It was, and you could belong to three or four or five of those. Sure. There was a commons that everybody participated in. But for the most part, people participated in three or four or five smaller sub-communities. And so, you know, one piece of advice I would have with people who have particularly general interest communities, of which there are, are fewer now, that it makes sense to subdivide it into groups of 150, 200, 300 people and allow those people to you know, cross-pollinate, but also give them a space where, you know, if your sports uh, forum has gotten to be 3,000 people, maybe you need a baseball forum and a tennis forum. Right. Break it down. Get more specific. If you are a professional and you're working in online community, this is not news to you. For sure. Well, like on that note, actually, I'm curious to kind of tie back to what you're saying about social capital, knowledge capital. I'm curious to get your take on, you know, what we call now the community industry or the community profession. And so in the last couple of years, especially community has blown up. More companies are investing in community, building out community teams, community programs. You know, for me, who's been doing this work professionally for 13 years, the last year itself has been exponential in terms of how companies are investing in community. I'm curious to get your take on, is it good? Is it a natural thing for businesses to be providing community? And what happens when you kind of mix 
these market norms of transactional relationships with social norms and social capital? Oh, boy. Well, you know, 20 years ago, I had a consulting group, Rheingold Associates. We had 20 people. Back then, it was a big deal for companies. Every company wanted to have a community, an online community. And so I was bombarded by requests. Mm. And the first thing that I always asked them was, are you really sure you want to do this? Yeah. And the second thing I asked was, do you have a plan? And for most people, their plan was, oh, yes, we're going to use a BBS. Right. Start with a platform. What we charged people for and what we did with them was iterative process in which we helped them put together a plan that integrated the social, the informational, the technological, and the, and the marketing aspects of community. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not a business school guy, and I never thought of myself as a marketing person. But when I started asking these businesses questions, I would say, well, who's this for? And what do they do for you? And what do you do for them? And how do you find them? How do you get them to check you out? How do you keep them interested? I was told, well, that's marketing 101. So really, the planning has a lot to do with why are we doing this? Who are we doing this for? Right. You know, just one example is if you have a technology product or any other kind of product, and you're going to create an online forum for your customers your users, you better make sure that you have some people who are paid to pay attention to these people and who have a a line to management and who can actually get things done. If people want to improve your product or they've got a problem with your service and they complain about it or they give you suggestions and then nothing comes of it, that's worse than not communicating with them at all. The next thing I had to tell them was, do you have a budget for a professional who's going to be spending 100% of their working time helping you with your community? Which isn't to say that a group of people can't get together and create an online community. But if you're going to do it with a business and you're going to do it at scale, it's absolutely going to run off the rails. As I'm sure most of your listeners know, a number of well-known rat holes that groups can fall into and ruin the whole thing. You know, the the well didn't call them moderators. They called us hosts. And I still think about it like a host of a party. You just don't rent a room and buy some beer to have a party. You want to invite the right mix of people. You want to welcome them when they show up. You want to introduce them to each other. You want to maybe move the fights away from the punch bowl. A good host is, must be, a member of that community, a participant mm-hmm. of that community. And there's a lot of nuance involved. And I sat down one day in about 15 minutes in, I guess, I don't know, 1996, I wrote a thing about the art of hosting online. And if you Google my name and the art of hosting online, you'll get it. But a lot of it has to do with communicating with people through back channels for modeling mm-hmm. behavior and, and doing the number of One thing that you can do that will guarantee that someone who posts for the first time will post again is for someone to respond to them and use their name. Because Mm -hmm. when you enter a community, everybody there is an old timer. It's an in-group as far as you're concerned. And you need to be welcomed and someone needs to welcome you. And of course, I think in good communities, it's not just the professionals who are paid to do it. 
they cultivate an atmosphere where people want to have a more diverse community and larger community and enlarges their prospects as well. So everybody should be a welcomer and a helper. And if you're going to grow your community of hosts, sometimes, quite often, there are people you didn't know before who emerge in your community, and they're the ones who do a lot of hosting. They try to break up fights. They introduce people to each other. Hire those people. Mm. There is certainly a community of professional moderators. And one of the things that we did back in the Rheingold Associates days was train people. We're all members of communities. We all know how that ought to work. Translating that into life online requires a, a little bit of help, but it's something that people basically know. So I'm all in favor of having experienced moderators. If you're going to have a business, you've got to have a host. I distinguish a moderator in Usenet was a gatekeeper. So moderated news groups, you sent your post, and then the moderator would look at it and decide whether it was okay and then pass it along. And you know, in some cases, like Facebook, where they've got a huge amount of bad material, you really need people to do that kind of pre-screening. But I think the host function is more important. You're not going to have a community unless you can convince the people who first come to it to not only continue, but to invite their friends. I love that. Yeah. And I love reframing it as a host. It aligns a lot with what we've learned through practice, how we've set it up. We start, we call our moderators communiteers is what we call them at CMX because moderator didn't feel quite right either. But I love the making sure every single person feels welcome and using their name. I think that's like a undervalued tool is calling someone by their name. It just makes them feel seen and welcome. And then part of the challenge today is because all these things are digitalized, it's easier and easier to automate things. And so now it's like maybe not even enough to just use their name because you can just automate that to, for their name to show up. So it's like, what are the things that you can do to actually make someone feel seen and welcome in the community because they are still out in the outside group and you're the inside group? How do you make them feel like they're part of the inside group? I love that. Yeah. And you know, Things become like an in-group in a natural way because any community has its kind of in-jokes and seminal events and lore and mythos. And if you don't know that, you feel somewhat excluded from it. So, you know, helping people find their way in, I think it's really important for a community. I love that. So you're not going to write any more books. I'm not going to ask you to, but as you said, your books tend to look out about 10 years and, and kind of yeah. predict what the next 10 years look like. Your most recent book was almost 10 years ago, How yeah. to Thrive Online with NetSmart. So like, I guess looking at where we are now, you mentioned coming back to this topic, like, are these things serving us? Are they good for us? And, and then if you were to write a book today about where things are going or where they need to go, what does that look like? What does the future of community look like? Okay, first of all, those are two questions. I'll answer the first one. I did, I, mean, I squeezed two in for the, my last one. <laughs> my answer to, the, is this any good for us, has been, it depends on what people know. That it's really not a matter of technology, it's a matter of literacy. Now, you and I and all of the listeners to this podcast, we know a lot of things about how to hang out online. But you know what? Parents may teach their kids about sex, but uh, quite often they think they're, and correctly think their kids know more about life online than they do. So that they don't teach them about that. And certainly it's not something that you find in, in school. So I felt that there are a number of literacies or fluencies that 
if you as an individual knew them, you would do better. That's mm-hmm. the how to thrive online. But also, if more people knew these literacies, the better life would be for all of us. It would improve the commons. So I identified five essential literacies. And in really in order of importance, attention was the first one. And I think everybody knows what I'm talking about. Now, attention is the foundation of thought and, and communication. And attention is also what is monetized online. And there's a lot of engineering that's going into attracting and keeping your attention, whether you know it or not. Mm-hmm. The good news about that is, yes, we're not really trained to control our attention in the digital age, but there are ways that you can train yourself. And in fact, the ancient tradition of meditation is all about paying attention to your attention. And there's a lot of scientific research about that these days. And so mm-hmm. I give some practical advice about that. You know, I, I taught something to my students I called infotension. I said, when you start your day, I want you to put a little post-it note in the corner of your screen. List two or three things you want to accomplish by the time you close your laptop or you turn your computer off. And every once in a while, your gaze will fall upon that. And I want you to look at the time and I want you to ask yourself, what am I doing and how much more do I have to do to get these things done? It's not really a matter of policing yourself. It's just a matter of making yourself more aware right. of what you're doing. The second one I called crap detection. <laughs> I wrote about that in my book. The way I started was when my daughter was in middle school, she started using search engines and I had to sit down with her and say, you know, you get a book from the library and there's been a publisher and an editor. And someone bought that book for your school and the librarian classified it and your teacher assigned it. You can pretty much be sure you might not agree with its opinions, but if they they make a statement of fact, it's probably true. Now you can put a term into a search engine and you can ask any question at any time, anywhere, and get a million answers in a second. But it's now up to you to determine which of those answers are good information, not bad information or deliberate misinformation. Information. And so, again, something not taught in school that ought to be taught, I think, to 11 year olds. When I wrote the book, the research indicated that a majority of college students thought that if it was on Google, it must be true. I think that certainly has changed since then, but there's a, a lot of people falling for a lot of bad information out there. I don't have to elaborate on that. The third one was participation. We wouldn't be having this conversation if. People hadn't participated and invented Facebook and Twitter and and a lot of other things. The web wasn't built by a company or a government. It was built by millions of people putting up websites that link to each other. Then collaboration. You know, we can have a whole conversation just about the different ways that you can collaborate online. And, uh, you know, there's uh, what they call social production, like Wikipedia is what most people know, or open source. Um, There are smart mobs. I, I wrote a book about that. There's crowdfunding. I I could go on. I don't want to go through the whole list, but there's so many different ways to collaborate and cooperate with people. And then finally, network awareness, because we live in an increasingly networked world. And there's some scientific understanding about the nature of networks that anyone who knows it will do better. So that's the real quick summary of that book. I taught a course on it, and I have a syllabus online for teachers who also Mm. want to teach about those literacies. I'm afraid we're losing that literacy race in a big way. And I'm also afraid that one thing that's changed in the 10 years uh, since that book is that misinformation, that deliberate disinformation has been weaponized. So we now have computational propaganda that's swaying 
elections and spreading misinformation about disease and, and vaccination. So I'm not so sanguine about, I think that if we did start teaching people that, we would improve the online comments. Anyway, what was the second question? Oh, what book would I write? Well, yeah, but before that, just to comment on what you shared, I, I think it's a really important point because a lot of the narrative when people are criticizing platforms or criticizing the world of online community today, it's the blame is put on the platform and the ecosystems and the algorithms and the things that are giving us all this information. But I think the point is an important one that when you talk about literacy, it puts the onus on the individual, on us to come to the internet with awareness and intention and tools that help us sort out what's true or untrue, what's harmful versus helpful, what's fact versus fiction. And there really hasn't been any sort of literacy training for kids or for most people. I think we're starting to see some more now and not just in in how to stay safe, but how to use it proactively to form more meaningful relationships. Like we're starting to see more books now, like my friend Smiley just published a book, Friendship in the Age of Loneliness, that gives you like practical tools to use the internet and in person to build more meaningful relationships. And so it's just, we have to teach ourselves how to use these tools, but the tools are also evolving and innovating very quickly. So the literacy has to try to keep up with the technology. Yeah. And teach our friends and teach our kids as well. Yeah. I love that. All right. Yeah. My second question was, if you were to write that book today about what the next 10 years would look like, what would that book be and what would it say? Well, 10 years ago, what most interested me was that Nobody had really written a book about the culture of YouTube. Mm. And YouTube was such an anomaly in that, yes, we knew there would be video online, but nobody thought that private individuals would be uploading. I think in something like in two or three days, people upload more material than has been broadcast (laughs) in the history of television. It's just astonishing. And back then, there were some really interesting memes and themes that were emerging from YouTube. And there are so many different subcultures on YouTube. And also, what a great educational medium. You know, if you want to learn how to, to, if you ask a 14-year-old, how do you learn how to play the ukulele or configure a web server? They're going to say, I search on YouTube. There's a lot of bad info on YouTube. But again, if you know how to find it, there's a lot of great info. But not only has the number of cultures expanded so much in the 10 years that you could not comprehensively do it in a single book. But the dark side has emerged so strongly. Again, the algorithm, your 14-year-old starts out being interested in video games and ends up being recruited as an extremist. So I still, it would be a massive project or it would be a genius writer who's able to take the right slice out of that, or it would be a series of different books. So I think that YouTube itself is just a, a rich, that's what interested me. That's what I thought would be interesting in the, for the next uh, 10 years. You mentioned my TED Talk, and my TED Talk uh, was about why don't we have an interdisciplinary science of cooperation and collective action? And I actually worked with the Institute for the Future for a few years to try to build a basis for that. But I'm happy to say that it's happening now. There's our programs at Arizona State University and the University of Amsterdam. So people are beginning to learn about cooperation in its larger sense, but also how it interacts with life online. There's also the Center for Collective Intelligence at MIT Mm -hmm. Sloan School. So 
we're beginning to see people looking into these things that we would be so much better off if we had had some systematic understanding of it 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And so, so yeah, it sounds like the things that you think are worth understanding for the next 10 years are kind of the ethics of these algorithms and how they're impacting communities and how they're impacting education and how we're using the internet. Is that right? Yeah. And what to do about it? What to do about this computational propaganda and the monetization of our attention and the the monetization of engagement, which often means really awful material. Right. I Mm. think that this is something that we have to talk about politically in a regulatory way, because I don't think that we can do it as individuals versus these big corporations. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I think the Center for Humane Technology is another group that's working a lot on this stuff today, too. So it's cool to see people starting to talk about it. But starting now is like, what, 20, 30 years, a little late. But I hope we figure it out because I think we both know all the potential that online community can bring. But we need to just keep bringing a lot of intention to how we build it and how we use it. Agreed. All right. Well... We are now at the end of our interview, which means it's time for my rapid fire question round. We're going to ask quick questions and get your quick answers. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) All right. First question. Really important one. If you could only eat one kind of food for the rest of your life, what would it be? Boy, that would be terrible, wouldn't it? (laughs) I'd say uh, apricots, avocados, or melons. Apricots or avocados? Yeah. I think I could probably survive on avocado. It's kind of California blood now. All right. Avocados it is. Next question. What's your favorite book to give as a gift to others? And can't be one of your own. I like to give the Ursula Le Guin translation of the Tao Te Ching. Ah. I don't know if I've read that translation. It's considered one of the world's oldest books. And it's really simple. And it's about life. And what was true 5,000 years ago is true today. And it's not religious. I've read a translation of it. I don't know if it was that one. So I'm going to have to check and make sure I read that one now. That's a really good recommendation. All right. In one minute, share your wildest community story. Wildest community stories? Just one story. Okay, one story. You know, in the very early days of the well, there was a member of the well who got sick in Nepal. And somehow or another, we organized to get the money to find the people to get the transportation, get the medical care, and go through the paperwork you need to go from country to country to get her from Nepal back to the U.S. And that was that wow. convinced us that the yeah. social capital thing was real. Probably not the wildest story, but it was the first one that came to mind. That's a, that is a wild story. That's really cool. It's always my favorite stories from communities, too, where like something happens to someone and the community rallies around them and does things you didn't think were possible. That's really cool. Thanks for sharing. All right, next question. Have you ever worn socks with sandals? I must have, but <laughs> that's not really my style. Now you're go-to, but sometimes it happens. In fact, if you Google my name and painted shoes, you will find something. I did that. I looked at your painted shoes. They're delightful. They're boots mostly, yeah? I started with boots, but now I've got a lot of different shoes. And what's interesting why does everybody feel they have to buy their fashion and not make their own fashion? You don't have to be a world-famous couturier to paint your shoes. At one point, I was on a railroad train in England, and the only other person in the car was like a, a punk woman with us, a spiked 
mohawk yeah. and painted shoes. And we just kept looking at each other. And I thought, well, there are people all over the world who have that one thing in common, which is that we make our own little piece of our fashion and don't just buy it all from someone else. I love that. I'm going to think about what I could start painting. Maybe my glasses or something. All right, cool. Next question. What's a go-to community engagement tactic or conversation starter that you like to use in your communities? I like to find what people are interested in and how many people are interested in the same thing. I think servicing mutual interests is really important. Mm. Is there a specific question you like to ask that helps you get to that insight? Nothing that comes to mind right off the bat. All right. Just what are you all interested in? And then dive into that from there. Next question then. Who in the world of community would you most like to take out to lunch? I'd like to take Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg out to lunch and tell them what a horrible, horrible thing they're doing (laughs) to the world. Give them a piece of your mind. I actually was invited to speak to the social scientists at Facebook a number of years ago, and I did give them a piece of my mind, but it doesn't seem to have done a lot of good. Hmm. Or maybe it has. Maybe things would be worse without them. Maybe it has. Yeah. I've been able to work with the Facebook groups team specifically and focus on building more meaningful communities and make that product good. But Oh, and there are are wonderful, dedicated people there. I don't mean to say that they are. I think most of the people who work there also realize that there's like this massive behemoth of an engine that's been built that no one person can control anymore. And they all want to make it better. But it's a complex challenge, right? You connected the world and now we're seeing what happens. Yeah. All right. Next question <laughs> before we go too deep down that road. What's a community product or technology that you wish existed? You know, something that would identify people who would be a good community if they only knew of each other. So identify like common interests that don't have a connection yet. Yeah. I like it. Cool. Next question. What's the weirdest community you've ever been a part of? Weirdest community I've ever been a part of? Well, you know, on the well, there was a conference called Weird. Ah. In which we tried to break all the rules and annoy each other and amuse each other and come up with fun stuff where we didn't have to adopt the same rules that we adopted elsewhere. We could be a little bit more irresponsible. I like that. It's kind of Burning Man-esque. Cool. All right. And what's a question I didn't ask you that I should have? Well, I'm not going to get into the the whole discussion, but on the whole, since your hopefulness and optimism of 1985, and now you are in the world we're in now, would we be better off if social media had never happened? Hmm. What do you think? I got to ask. With most questions like this, it's a fake question because it's not a binary answer. It's as humans are, it's both and. If people were to say, what's wrong with the internet? I'd have to say, you're saying what's wrong with people. It would have happened some way, right? We're social beings. We're going to keep innovating on how we socialize and how we connect and how we collaborate. Yes. And we've we've had these institutions like governments and religions and, and societies that are trying to help improve people. We're the predator species who have clawed our way to the top of the pyramid. And now we're trying to be, quote, humans. So I think humans are a work in progress, as is social media. That's very, very true. All right. Last question. If you were to find yourself on your deathbed and had to condense all of your life lessons into one Twitter-sized piece of advice for the rest of the world on how to live, what would that advice be? 
the Buddha said, pay attention, and Jesus said, love one another. And I don't understand why it has to be any more complicated than that. Pay attention and love one another. Amen, brother. I love it. Howard, this is an absolute pleasure. I could riff on community theory and psychology and past and future with you all day. Super grateful for you taking the time to chat with me today and for sharing all your experiences with our listeners. And just thank you for all the work that you've done in your entire career and everything you've written and everything you've created. Whether or not social media is good or bad for the world, I feel very confident that you're someone who has always worked to make it better, has had a massive positive influence on how we build online communities today. And and you set a lot of the standards and insights that people are putting into practice every day as part of their lives and careers today. So just really, really grateful for you. And thanks again for chatting with me today. The Masters of Community is brought to you by CMX, the world's largest network of community professionals, and Bevy, the enterprise platform powering communities for the world's leading brands. This episode was edited and produced by Finesse Media. Music was provided by Seiji Cataldo and design was provided by Virginia DeMarco. If you enjoyed this episode, please drop us a review in iTunes. It's a huge help for helping us get this podcast in front of more people. We really, really appreciate it. And share it with your networks. The more people that learn about the power of community, the better. We have a new episode every week. So until then, thank you so much for listening and see you next time.